Amen. As we've been working through the book of Galatians together on Sunday mornings, we have been uh, confronted um, with what we believe is probably the earliest of Paul's writings. We have met Paul at probably the most urgent, the most um, passionate and emotional um, that we see him throughout the New Testament because he's very concerned with these churches. See, it's by way of review, because I know that we have many in the room that have not been with us as we've walked through the book of Galatians together. Um, Chapters 1 and 2 in Galatians, Paul is defending the authority of his gospel. Because there are some false teachers who have come into the churches of Galatia and have begun teaching a false gospel. They have been turning the affections of the people away from Jesus Christ to a religious system as they have tried to convince the Galatian Christians that in order to really be a part of God's family, they must first and foremost become a part of the Jewish family. So they must embrace all of the practices of the Old Testament law, live under the law, be circumcised as children of Abraham. And they are questioning Paul's authority and the gospel that Paul preached. And so in chapters 1 and chapters 2, Paul declares that the gospel that he preached was not man's gospel, but was God's gospel. That the Lord had delivered it to him, that the Lord had um, given it to him in such a way that it was not altered by any of the Jerusalem apostles, and it was actually the authority upon which Paul confronted Peter when Peter's life stepped out of line with the gospel. We've been over the last several weeks now in chapters 3 and 4, and chapters 3 and 4 are the hinge point of the entire letter, and they are also at that same time They are the heart of Paul's theological argument as he is explaining now the message of the gospel. He's reminding them of the content of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in these chapters, Paul has taught us that God's acceptance of his people has never actually been based on their obedience to the law. Instead, going all the way back to Abraham, Abraham was declared righteous. He was welcomed into the family of God, adopted by God because of his faith. And that's exactly the way that God works for us today, that God declares us righteous by our faith, our belief in him and in his promises. The law then was never actually meant to be a substitute for or even a supplement to that original promise. Instead, what Paul says is that the law was to serve as a tutor or a guardian. The law's purpose was to both educate us in the reality of our depravity, our sinfulness, and also, Paul says, imprison us in our inability to cure our own corruption. And in doing that, the law's purpose was then to serve as a guardian that kept us and brought us to the point of being awakened to our need for the one who can do something to cure our corruption. And the law was meant to lead us to that Savior who is Jesus Christ, the one who perfectly fulfilled the law, the one who bore the punishment of the law on our behalf, and who therefore now frees us from the law through faith. This Savior, Jesus Christ, 
As Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, as the angel comes to Joseph, says Jesus came to save his people from their sins. But not only from our sins, but also from this law of slavery. And so last week, what we saw is that justification, being declared and accepted as righteous by God, as having our sins forgiven, that though that is the heart of the gospel, it's not really the climax of the gospel. That there's something even greater than being declared not guilty. And that's our adoption as sons and daughters of God. That God has not only declared us not guilty, Jesus didn't just come to bear our punishment and wash our record clean. He came to bring us into the family of God so that you and I are now filled with the Spirit of God in an intimate relationship with God and recipients of the inheritance that belongs to Jesus Christ himself. So there you go. You're caught up with where we've been to this point. And Paul now moves from that into what is probably the most emotional section in all of Galatians. As he bears his heart and his soul before the Galatian churches. Because you see what Paul is identifying in the Galatians is the same thing that is true of you and me. This mysterious justification and adoption that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ can be scary. Because the familiarity of our old lives, our old ways of living, can sometimes be a temptation to keep drawing us back into our former sins and the former systems of slavery. In his book titled Adopted for Life, Dr. Russell Moore, who was a Sunday school teacher of mine at one point, a professor and a friend, chronicles the adoption of his two oldest sons. He and his wife struggled for years um, with miscarriage. And God eventually opened the door for them to adopt two young boys from Russia. And in that book, he chronicles the moment when they finally received and signed all of the paperwork. And they had these two boys in their car and they were leaving the orphanage. The place that Dr. Moore at, one, at another point described being the eeriest place he had ever entered in his life. Because he walked into a room filled with babies, and there wasn't a sound anywhere in the room. No cooing, no crying, nothing, because these children had learned that no matter how often they cried and screamed, no one was coming to help them. Children that he brought home, and they would stuff food down in their diapers because they had been trained they weren't really sure when and where their next meal was going to come from. That was the environment that they, that they were being raised in, these two small children. And as Dr. Moore and his wife put them in the car to finally take them home from the orphanage and back to America, these two small boys in the car seats behind them were reaching out the windows and grasping at the only reality that they had ever known, which was that heinous orphanage. And Dr. Moore thought in his mind, if you only understood what is waiting for you, you would never consider going back. That's exactly what Paul wants you and I to see and the Galatians to see in the verses we're about to read. 
because you and I are just like those two little orphans. Though we are now sitting safely and securely in the great, God's great work of our salvation while he is in the driver's seat doing absolutely everything that is necessary to get us from where we are to our internal inheritance and presence with him, we are like those children looking back at our sinful systems that we came out of, looking around at the, the scariness of the world that is around us, looking into ourselves and that, at the broken leadership that might be around us, and we are crying out for what is comfortable, even though it is evil. And so Paul is warning us, he is calling us, he's exposing our tendency to return to slavery of sin and systems of self-righteousness. And Paul issues in these verses an urgent warning as he pleads with the Galatians and with us to not turn back to our former systems of slavery, but to zealously press forward into maturity in Christ. Look with me, if you will, in Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 8. Paul writes, "Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain." Brothers, I beg you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I'm present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the passionate pleas of Paul in these verses. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes, convict our hearts, clear our minds, that we might humble ourselves before you and your word this morning, that we might know how it is that you are calling us to turn back, not to the systems of sin and slavery that we were once in before knowing Jesus Christ and being known by you, but instead to focus on Christ and to zealously pursue in faith and in freedom our identity in Jesus alone. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen and amen. These verses are perhaps, as I said, one of the most emotional moments in Paul's entire written ministry. He is at a point of being afraid. He is perplexed. He is broken over this congregation. 
Paul expresses from the very beginning his concern for these Galatians. He's been, spent some time explaining the gospel and the arc of the gospel, and we got to the climax, which is our adoption as sons, but now he expresses his concern with them. He lays out this stark contrast between the former life of slavery in verse 8 and the new life in Jesus Christ. And in that old life of slavery, Paul is, says that they were enslaved to things that are not by nature gods. The Galatians, if you remember, were Gentiles. They were pagans, worshiping the idols and the false gods of Greece and Rome and maybe their local particular culture. Paul boldly declares kind of an Old Testament notion that these idols and these false gods are no gods at all. Now, that's not to say that Paul is not taking serious, them seriously. You see, under these old systems, the, the Galatians sought to appease these gods through their sacrifice and through their service. And if they brought the right sacrifices and the right service, they then entitled themselves to the blessings of the God. But if they failed to live up to the standards of the God, then the God would invoke curses upon them. That will be important when we get into a few verses later in verses um, 13 and 14. Paul is not arguing that these religious systems of the, of the, the Galatians were powerless. Instead, according to verse 3 and verse 9, we see that behind these systems are what he refers to as the elementary principles of the world. What we noted last week to be demonic, hostile, spiritual forces. That there is something demonic behind the false gods that they were, that they were worshiping. But that nevertheless, as powerful as they might have been, as demonic as they might have been, they are not anything close to the God that Paul is proclaiming to them. They're not true gods. And the systems of these false gods were shams, elaborate demonic cons meant to enslave the Galatians and keep them from knowing the one true God. But praise the Lord, Paul says they haven't merely come to know the one true God, but instead that they have come to be known by the one true God. That that is what sets them apart and really what sets the Christian religion apart from anything else. That it's not some intellectual understanding of certain truth claims and facts and principles, but instead it is a relationship. Because that word, to know, to be known, implies an intimate relationship. It goes back to the old Hebrew word, to know, that we find all the way back in Genesis chapter three that, or chapter 4, that Adam knew his wife and she conceived a son. An intimate relationship. And that is how we are known by God. And what Paul is communicating to the Galatians and to you and to me is that when we talk about the doctrine of salvation, both justification, the forgiveness of our sins, and adoption into God's family, what we are talking about is something that is incredibly comforting knowing that that didn't happen by accident. But that God in all of his intentionality as a mother or a father goes across the world and adopts a child, pursued us, 
saved us by sending the Son, and He now, the Son now, sends even His Spirit to dwell in us. Knowing then the fellowship that we have with this Father who intentionally pursues His children, Paul asks this question, why? Why would we return to some demonic system of sin and slavery? The most shocking part about this, though, is that the system of slavery that Paul is referring to is not their previous pagan system of idolatry. Paul says that what they're turning to is not false idols, but they're celebrating, they are observing days, months, seasons, and years. That's a reference to the Jewish calendar of celebrating the weekly Sabbath, of celebrating the monthly new moon, of celebrating the annual feasts and festivals, and celebrating the the seven-year sabbatical cycle. They are moving out of one system of paganism into a religious system of Judaism that Paul says is demonic. Which is shocking, because Paul is a Jew, raised to love the law and, and, and to live under the law. But what Paul is saying is that when we turn the law into something that it was never meant to be, as we have seen, it overloads the law So, because it was never meant to bear the weight of accomplishing our righteousness. We don't merely just break it down. What we do is we turn it, we manipulate it, we distort it into something that's actually demonic. When we put our trust in the law to accomplish our righteousness, instead of seeing the law as a rule that leads us into right living before the Lord, out of a relationship with the Lord, we turn the law into some demonic system of religion. And to do that is to turn from Christ to something that is less than Christ, which is idolatry and apostasy the abandoning of the faith. Do you see now why Paul is so concerned that they are being tempted to trust in the Jewish law? They are on the verge of sinking, walking away from, abandoning the faith altogether. That's why Paul is so concerned. And in this, it's a warning to every single one of us Paul's concern here is not just for them, it's for us. And it's a warning that you and I must be on guard for our own tendencies to trust in ourselves instead of trusting in Jesus. To trust in anything that is less than Jesus and what he has accomplished for us. We are each and every one we saw prone to turn back from Christ to the systems in which we were once enslaved. I've said it before and I'll say it again. The Bible makes it clear, brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, that you and I are beings created to worship. It is not a matter of if we will worship. It's simply a matter of what we will worship. And as the Old Testament makes it clear, our hearts are idol factories where we are constantly bringing our idols into our own hearts. The natural bent of our affection is to return again and again to our own systems and efforts because if our faith and our righteousness is something that we can control, then we feel less anxious. And so Paul is warning us 
to not look at our religious record, to not look at the health and the growth of our church, to not look at the stability and the morality of our family or ourselves, that all of those fall far short of trusting in Jesus Christ alone for our righteousness. It's not about our wealth. It's not about our status in society. It's not about our economic power or political power or any of that. Instead, it is all about trusting in Jesus. Paul's warning to the Galatians is that the idolatrous systems that threaten our relationship with Christ is not always ugly and pagan in nature. Satan doesn't like to look that way, brothers and sisters. Satan isn't going to show up in, horny, in, in horns and a pitchfork and fire shooting out of his fingers because he knows that you're going to run away from that. So I'm not really concerned with the anti-God, atheistic systems of the world because you and I can see communism and all of the rest of it that is built out of an atheistic anti-God position is not something that is really a threat to the true church. What is a threat to the true church is the, the theological ideas and systems that seep into our bodies and our congregations that echo down through the ages the words of Satan in the garden. Did God really say? Does God really say his word is all that you need or is there something else out there that can supplement it? Did God really say that Jesus is the only way? Those are the heresies that I'm worried about and that you should be worried about. And my challenge and Paul's challenge, I believe, to each and every one of us is be Bereans, brothers and sisters. If you'll remember, the Bereans fact-checked Paul. They went to the Scriptures and double-checked everything that Paul said. If the Bereans were commended for fact-checking this one who has defended his apostolic authority, then please fact-check me. Please fact-check every single person that you are reading, that you are listening to, whether it be on the news or off of the Christian bookshelves. Go back to the Word of God and know the faith and hold fast to the faith and be alert and aware to your own tendencies to believe in something less than the gospel. But Paul moves immediately out of his concern for the Galatians and into this personal plea, this plea for the Galatians. His concern for their faithfulness leads him into this emotional appeal for their repentance. In verse 12, he cries out, I beg you to become as I am, because I've become as you are. Now, what in the world does Paul mean about that? What does it mean when Paul says, I, become like me because I've become like you? The most, I think the most clear answer as we dig into it in the context of what's going on is that Paul has become so convinced of the work of Jesus Christ on his behalf that he, a Jew by birth and by education and training, has now considered himself to be completely set free from the law. He's free from all that the law would impose upon him, from the imprisonment of the law, from adhering to the law as this system of salvation. He's freed from it. The Galatians were Greeks. They were Gentiles. They were never a part of the Jewish system altogether at all. 
They were outside of it from the beginning, freed from it from the beginning. Paul says, I've become like you. I'm not under the law anymore. You've never been under the law, but now get how crazy this is. I'm freed from the law. I'm out of the law. I'm free in Jesus Christ, but now you want to go back to the very same system that I've been set free from? Please don't do that. Please don't go back to this religious system of self-righteousness, of my dependence upon my behaviors to somehow make God happy or keep God happy. But to only ever trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. Paul has become like the Galatians, and he urges them to remember the blessedness, verse 15, with which they welcomed him. You remember what I said earlier? That the Galatians were part of a pagan system. And in that pagan system, they did everything that they could to keep the gods happy with them. And if the gods were happy with them, then the gods would bless them. But if the gods were angry with them, what would they do? Sleeping? What would they do? Curse them. What does cursing look like? It looks like sickness. It looks like suffering. It looks like persecution. After all, if it is the message of God, would it not come in power and in prominence and in prosperity and in all of these wonderful things? But what, how did Paul come to the Galatians? Sick. Weak. Frail. And in some miraculous way of God's presence working among the Galatians, these who would normally reject this weak, sick, frail man as someone cursed by God, love him as an angel and receive him even as Christ himself. Isn't that what Jesus said? Those who receive you, receive me. These Galatians received Paul. They welcomed Paul. They listened to Paul. And so in this their acceptance of Paul, their embracing of Paul, their loving of Paul is a picture of God doing something in their hearts that was completely countercultural. Because their culture would have told them to reject Paul and his message. And that spirit of blessedness is now being threatened. That spirit of joy and welcomeness and relationship is now being threatened. And Paul is calling them to remember. Remember the way that I came to you originally. And in that, Paul coming to the Galatians, sick and frail, the implication being, he says, you are not even my plan A. The only reason I originally preached the gospel to you, he says in verse 13, is because of a bodily ailment. The assumption would be that Paul was going to move right past the Galatians to someone else. But God providentially stopped him in his tracks. Brothers and sisters, what you and I need to understand is that God always works in and through the detours and the weaknesses of our lives. So we don't need to waste them. We don't need to turn from them. Instead, we need to be encouraged by Paul's own testimony that in his weakness and in the detour from his original plan, God did a tremendous work to save the Galatians. We can be encouraged that God works through those times in our lives when we feel like our plans have completely gone off the rails. And we're not where we want to be. We're not in the job that we want to be in. 
We're not in the city that we want to be in. Where our plans have gone completely out the window, God has brought you where you are for a purpose. Paul, throughout the letter to the 2 Corinthians, explains this to them, that God works in his weakness, that God works in his afflictions, that he might be a comfort and a strength to the Corinthians. He says a similar thing to the Colossians. He's not ashamed of his sufferings. And Paul even says that it's his bodily, physical ailment that somehow made him dependent upon the generosity and the love of these Galatian Christians that built this bond between pastor and church that was so beautiful. Brothers and sisters, what detours are there in your life that God can use for the advancement of his kingdom? What weakness is there in your life that God would redeem so that he can use your physical ailment, your mental struggle, your emotional weakness? How can God use that, redeem that, for the purposes of advancing the kingdom? Because the truth of the matter is, brothers and sisters, when you get hit with a physical malady such as cancer, guess what? You get to go places that you would never have chosen to go. You get to interact with people who are desperate and on the brink of death, and you are brought into that position by a sovereign providential God that you might bring the hope of the gospel to someone who may have none. Just as Paul was providentially stopped in his tracks that he might serve the Galatian church and that he might present the gospel. And so Paul pleads with them, don't turn away from that former blessedness, back to some system that really is slavery, even though it might seem powerful. Because Paul goes on from his plea to expressing his personal zeal. Zeal is a powerful word in Scripture. And what the ESV translates three separate times in the verses that follow, in verses 17 through 20, what the ESV translates as make much of, is this underlying Greek word for zeal. Zeal, a passion, a holy and a righteous burden and desire that flows out of them. Paul warns them in these verses that these false teachers have a zeal of their own. That zeal is to make much of the Galatians, but they don't have a good purpose, verse 17. Instead, these false teachers, these Judaizers, want to cut the Galatians off from their relationship with Paul so that they would be fully dependent upon these false teachers, upon their discipleship, upon their presence in their lives, to make them fully dependent upon them. They want to make a name for themselves. They want to build a community around them that is fully dependent upon them. What we can see right here, in a very real sense, is a first century version of the modern celebrity pastor phenomenon of today. Yes, brothers and sisters, I really do believe that there are pastors in this world who are building their own platforms of celebrity and power why do I believe that? Because it was happening in the first century. And we're no better than they are. And I am grateful for the worldwide platform of godly men and, and, and pastors and churches and even women who have podcasts that are building up the body of the church. 
But there are some who are creating an entire atmosphere that simply enables and empowers Christians to sit back on their haunches and become fully dependent upon that person. When the true ministry of a pastor is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That's why several years, or I think it was two years ago on Wednesday nights, I was convicted by the fact that our Wednesday night Bible study, we were asking why questions. Or not quite why questions, we were asking what questions. What does the Baptist faith and message say? What do we believe as Southern Baptists? What is it that distinguishes Protestants from Catholics? What questions? What questions are teaching questions? Teaching makes you dependent upon me. So our Wednesday night, we shifted to how questions. How do I study the Bible for myself? How do I pray? How do I share the gospel of Jesus Christ with other people? Because that is an equipping question. My goal is not for you to become more and more dependent upon me. Like Paul, my goal, my zeal as your pastor is to see you increase in your dependence and your faith and your maturity in Christ. That should be the goal of every single minister. That should be the goal of every single believer in Jesus Christ, to grow in maturity such that I am now able to take what has been given to me and give it away. And so if, if as one pastor and I had a conversation just this past week, and he was talking about having a conversation with somebody in his, in his church, and that person said, Pastor, I, I don't know how to share the gospel. I don't know how to evangelize. And the pastor asked him, you're a deacon in the church. You've been a member of this church for 30 years. You've been in Sunday school. You've been listening to my preaching for a year. And you've been, you, you don't know what the gospel is and how to share it? There's an unction on both sides, brothers and sisters, for you to embrace the gospel, to turn from yourself and anything that's less than God, the gospel, and for me as your pastor to be zealous for your maturity in Jesus Christ. And so we see Paul is not out to build his own platform, but you see in verse 19 that he is in the anguishes of childbirth. He is experiencing that kind of emotional anguish that the only thing that he can compare it to is a mother in labor. And he is in so much anguish over what? Over the, the, the image of Christ being formed in the Galatians. His zeal is not for their affection. His zeal is for their maturity in the faith. And as I look at this, this has been so challenging and yet encouraging to me as your pastor. Because in these verses, what we see is that we must, we can, follow the relational pattern that is pictured between Paul and the congregations of the Galatian churches as we grow up together as we live in love with one another. You see, what we see in this passage of Scripture is we see the Galatians who are willing to embrace and love and support Paul even in the face of his weaknesses. And on the flip side, we see Paul with a passion, a zeal, an unction for their safety, their spiritual safety, their spiritual security, their spiritual maturity. And there is this, this, this relationship that exists and so I want to just say to Spring Creek Baptist Church this morning, thank you for the ways that you have been patient and loving and encouraging to me. 
Because though five years ago I didn't show up with, with some physical ailment or suffering or some malady brought on by persecution, but I did show up as a young, inexperienced pastor who never served in senior leadership before. And you took a chance on me, and you're continuing to take a chance on me as, as I have shown and displayed what weakness and evil there is in inexperience. So I thank you for the ways that, like the Galatians, you have loved me in the face of my weaknesses. I thank you for your patience, and I'm looking forward to what we have. But at the same time, let me issue this challenge because I would encourage you to remember where you were five years ago. Because the exact words that were spoken to me when I interviewed for this position is that Spring Creek Baptist Church is a church that is broken and in need of revitalization. And I can say honestly from my position, I do not consider myself to be some revitalizing or pastoral ministry expert after these five years. I understand that I have an infinite amount of maturing still to go. I would ask you to think hard and humbly about the spiritual condition of your life, of your family, and our church. And are we really much further than we were then? But it's together that we go forward. If we're going to grow together, we must both humble ourselves. I must come down from the platform where I have said before, it is difficult to take the Word of God in a general context like a sermon, an email, a letter, and anything else and apply it to this broad of a group. Instead, I have to come down off of the platform where it's easy for me to generalize and sound harsh when I mean instead to merely communicate my own zealousness for your spiritual maturity, my own concern for, for false teachings and, and, and maybe off teachings that are in your heart and in your life and come down to where you are to speak face to face because isn't that what Paul says? Paul says, I understand that some of what I've said in this letter has sounded harsh. He's called them foolish. He's asked them who's bewitched them. He's been like a parent screaming at a child who is playing in the middle of the road with a car speeding through the neighborhood. Get out of the street. And he understands that that can sound harsh and his longing is to be with them face to face that he might shepherd them personally. And so I must humble myself to come out of the study and off of the platform to where you are. And you must get out of the pew. Out of your own systems of thinking where it's easy to consider me disconnected and maybe overzealous, and harsh, and instead, we need to meet in the middle and grow in our relationship one with another and also in our relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the way forward, brothers and sisters. That's the pattern of the Galatian churches to turn from all of those systems of slavery and towards relationship with Christ and relationship with one another. The beauty of biblical relationship between a pastor and his congregation, humbly, 
honoring one another, by living face to face with one another, speaking the truth in love with one another, burdened for the, the, the growth and the maturity and the protection and the sanctity of the body of believers of Jesus Christ, that is something that refocuses a watching world off of all of the chaos that is out there and onto Jesus Christ. And so as I conclude this morning, my question is simple. If our goal should be to refocus a lost and dying world onto Jesus Christ, if we should help them in their focus, where is yours? Are you focused on what's behind you? Those systems of religious behavior that you were raised in because you grew up in the church and you learned long before being filled with the Spirit how to do all of the right things in Sunday school and church and everything else? Are you maybe looking back to sinful patterns of lust and addiction to deal with your own brokenness, or are you focused on Christ? Are you focused on the brokenness of your life, the weaknesses, your fears, that keep you in disobedience. I could never share the gospel because that makes me so terrified. It fills me with such anxiety to knock on someone's door and speak the gospel or to bring it up. Fear is not an excuse for disobedience, brothers and sisters. Being afraid and focused on the broken, messed up world around us will leave us paralyzed and focused in the wrong direction. Focusing on the weaknesses and the failures of your leader leaders will leave you angry, will leave you anxious, will lead to divisiveness. Said we must all focus our minds and our hearts on Jesus alone to not only accomplish our salvation, but to ensure our transformation to constantly fight every temptation to look away and hold fast to the gospel. Where is your focus today? I invite you, if you would, to bow your heads and close your eyes and humbly present that question to the Holy Spirit that he might speak deeply into your heart, exposing anything that you are looking to that is less than Jesus Christ, anything that would be a distraction from the gospel, anything that would be a system of slavery instead of one of love and grace and sonship. Would you pray? Spend some time with the Lord, and I'll close this out in a moment.